This is the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast for February 1st, 2019. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Terzakian. Well, it's February already. The new year is already one month. I can't believe it's already here. I know. And still lots of news, and especially this week. We thought we'd just talk about the news headlines because there's been quite a bit going on this week. There has. There has. First off is Venezuela. Two people claiming to be president, and we've got uh, issues that affect PDVSA, the national oil company, and uh, ultimately it affects us here in Alberta because we produce a lot of heavy oil. Yeah, let's talk. We'll be talking about that. We'll be talking about the government of Alberta's announcement that they will start to reduce these Alberta oil curtailments. We're only one month into this, and we're already reducing our cuts. I so what yeah. we'll talk about that. Short lived, short lived. And okay, we've got uh, that uh, issue with the Redwater legal case relating to abandonments and liability. We've got to talk about that for a few minutes. I yeah, think that affects uh, uh, the liabilities here in Alberta, but yeah. it has implications, I think, across Canada when it comes to natural resources projects or projects exactly. that leave liabilities. Exactly, exactly. And finally, the city of Victoria is recommending a class action lawsuit to help the city pay for costs of climate change. That's not new. and We've got many cities that have been doing that in the United States, so we want to have a brief discussion about that and a recent editorial that I put out. Okay, well, let's get going because lots to cover. So Venezuela. So big news, obviously, this week, Nicolas Maduro has support. He's the president that's been in place for some time now. He has the support of the military. But Juan Guaido seems to have the popular support. There are people like in the streets uh, yeah. rallying for him. And most importantly, he has the support of U.S. government and other major countries. Including Canada. Okay, so and exactly, including Canada. And of course, the U.S. government announced this week that uh, policy that effectively stops imports of Venezuelan crude oil into the United States. So we're going to talk about that. But first, let's talk about what uh, Venezuelan production looks like today, where it's come from, and maybe where it will go uh, just at the production level. And then we'll talk yeah. about the implications to the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I think the history of Venezuela is important to recognize because really Venezuela, Mexico, United States, Russia, and Canada, if you go back even into the late 19th century, I mean, these were the pioneers and the champions of commercializing the oil business into the 20th century. And Venezuela by the 1950s was one of the big, wealthy, stable producers of oil. And look, over the last dozen years, and in fact, over the last uh, couple of years, it's just descended into civil chaos and is now down to how many million barrels a day? Well, they're producing about 1.25 million barrels a day, but that's like uh, half of what it was three to four years ago. So since the downturn, since 2014, the country's production has been sliding, and especially this year. I mean, they dropped from about 1.6 million barrels a day a year ago to where they are now. So the decline, though, has stabilized. The last three months, there started to be, you know, just a slowdown in the rate of decline, leading many people to believe that the production may have hit a steady state, that maybe, sure. you know, it was going to level out at a million barrels. But of course, now it's really uncertain. Depending on how this political battle goes, um, it could definitely impact the outlook for where that production goes. So they're contributing on 100 million barrel a day total world production, 1.6 million, 1.6%. It well, it's actually ne- closer to 1.25 now. Oh, so 1.25, like 1%, okay. Yeah, yeah. So call it a percent. Uh, still consequential. But the real news is it's not going into that United States Gulf Coast refinery complex because most of Venezuela's output is heavy. That's right. So, you know, the, by the way, I do believe that their production at 1.2 or 1 is going to continue, assuming there's no 
issues in the country, but there will be buyers for that crude. But the U.S. is saying, I'm not going to buy that crude anymore. The U.S. imports about 500,000 barrels a day. So about half of their production is coming into the U.S. Now, the policy that's been put in place effectively stops the imports. U.S. companies could still buy Venezuelan crude, but the money would have to go into a bank account used by Goedo, the new leader Mm -hmm. that the U.S. is recognizing. And so I think there'll be some motivation for Nicolas Maduro to not send the tankers there. (laughs) And so I do believe with that kind of amount of crude, it will be absorbed in the global Mm -hmm. system. Maybe he'll sell it at a discount. So I don't think it takes that crude off the market from a supply-demand perspective. But it does leave the U.S. Gulf Coast refiners who depend on heavy oil short necessary crude that they need to run their refineries. So talk about that because the U.S. Gulf Coast refinery complex. I mean, I've been down there in Baytown, Texas. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. The the size of these refineries is probably like the eighth wonder of the world. It's such, so massive. Right? Yeah, it's about just, like half of all the refining capacity in the U.S. is down on the Gulf Coast, well, Louisiana, too, Texas. Right? Uh, it's, yeah. Yeah, in terms of its complexity, it's very unique as well. It has these coker units, which can take the heavy crude and turn it into light transportation products. And there's not very many refineries around the world that have right. the capacity that they do. And so they've been typically, historically, processing uh, over 2 million barrels a day of heavy crude. Now, right now, they're not actually processing that much, and that's because Venezuela has fallen Mm. off a lot, and also Mexico. Those have been historical heavy oil suppliers to those refiners. Their production's been declining, and so they're not even using the capacity that they have to its fullest. And because of that, heavy oil prices on the Gulf Coast have been relatively strong. They used to always be at quite a big discount to light crudes, but that gap has really narrowed because the demand for those heavy crudes has been so high. Right. So Venezuela drops off Mexico in decline. Canada's a big supplier. Well, we're not a big supplier, unfortunately, because of our lack of ability to get crude there. So although we could produce a lot of heavy crude because the pipeline systems, uh, there's limited ability to get the crude by pipeline to the Gulf Coast. So today we send about 400,000 barrels a day of crude oil to the Gulf Coast. Of course, there's more demand there. We just haven't had the ability to get the crude there. So most of our heavies actually go to the Midwest. That's right. 1.8 million barrels a day of our heavy goes to the Midwest. And what's left over, 0.4 million barrels a day, goes by pipe to the Gulf Coast. Now that we have this oversupply in Western Canada, there's more crude by rail. And all of that, I would say most of that is going to the Gulf Coast. Well, you know, there's another interesting dynamic, which is that heavy oil deficits in the Gulf Coast have also probably typically been fulfilled by the Saudi Arabia, sort of their marginal barrels. And when they cut, as they have, they cut their heavy barrels first. That's right. Although they may be changing that decision now if they're going to get maybe a better realized price for heavy. But this is an opportunity for the Canadian producers if we can get it out. And the way to get it out in the absence of a Keystone XL is rail. It's crude by rail. We've got uh, a situation where the railroads may be actually coming faster than we think to alleviate the the price differential Mm -hmm. uh, potentially even more and get into our next subject, which is the early curtailment curtailment of the curtailment, in other words. Yeah, I mean, if crude by rail starts uh, increasing faster than we think, then we don't need to curtail mm-hmm. crude as much. Mm-hmm. I, I want to add one thing, though, before sure. we move on to the next topic. It's There's two factors here. It's the fact that there's a much stronger price for heavy oil on the Gulf Coast because the demand, so that historical discount on yeah. the coast is gone. But the other factor that's really supporting this is the inland crudes right now are, are quite well, cheap because of bottlenecks in the Permian up. and the Cushing. Right. So these two factors are creating a very unusual situation where the differentials in Western Canada look, you know, very narrow and wouldn't support crude by rail because the Gulf Coast pricing is so much stronger. Right. You know, we have a lot of motivation. 
I also wonder, you know, these refiners in the Gulf Coast are massive refiners with a lot of resources available to them, including rail cars and locomotives. Could we not see, you know, one of the constraints out of Western Canada has been that we don't have enough locomotives and rail cars. Could we not see some of their fleets be moved up here sure. uh, because they don't have another source of yeah. crude oil? Well, it's a, you know, I mean, it's, it's the dynamics are so interesting because it potentially creates now refinery upon refinery competition in the United States. So the Gulf Coast refineries competing with the Midwest refineries to get the Canadian crude. You know, and here we've been sitting uh, for quite a while thinking, oh my gosh, who wants all my crude? Now, all of a sudden, there's a pull for the heavy stuff. There is. Yeah. So it'll be really interesting to see how things yeah. evolve over the next two, three months here. Yeah. I, I think one more closing thing, though, Jackie, is that uh, the Venezuelan situation could twist around the other way quickly. I mean, if Guaido is acknowledged to be in Maduro is out, then that could signal a return of Venezuelan production and, and purchases, right? That's right. It, you know, if, if that switch happens, then the policy would be off and the crude would be moving to the Gulf Coast. The other thing, people are looking at the global markets just from a pure supply-demand balance. Like, mm-hmm. What does this mean for global supply? I'd said earlier, I still think that crude's going to get it to the market. And most people are saying, oh, well, Venezuela keeps declining. Well, it, there is the potential with Guaido turning things around that we could actually see more supply coming from Venezuela. So, you know, it's a lot of uncertainty. It could be bullish or bearish here. It could be. But for now, we'll take the bullishness and move into the recent announcement the last couple of days that uh, the provincial government is allowing more oil to come into the market. So the 325, 325,000 barrels a day that they wanted to curtail, representing about 8.7% of total production, they cut how much? They're going to reduce that by 75,000. So starting this month, starting so, in February. So we're down to 250 as a curtailment. That's right. Okay. And so in just one month, we've already cut the curtailments yeah. uh, by a significant amount. And, and why did they do that? Well, the storage draws have been a good size. So we have data that shows that the storage is down about 5 million barrels so far. You know, this is getting more into the normal zone. I think, you know, my assessment is we probably need to draw another 5 million more to reach the five-year average range. Uh, But we're halfway towards that goal in a month. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of complexities behind the scenes that we can't uh, really go into on on this short podcast. But uh, there's other issues relating to the way the formula works in terms of who gets curtailed and who doesn't and the implications on their operations and so on and so forth. But I do think that the combination of the Gulf Coast situation with the heavy oils combined with the narrowing of the differential combined with more rail combined with all sorts of things is leading to the relaxation of the curtailments sooner than we thought. Although, I mean, on our previous podcast, we were suggesting that uh, they were going to be easing before spring. That's right. You know, and so this is a little faster, but at the same time, um, you know, the big uncertainty in looking at this for me was how much crude by rail would we continue to see during this curtailment period because the differentials have gotten quite narrow. Mm-hmm. Well, now that we got such strong pricing on the Gulf Coast, there's a lot of motivation. And on top of that, there was some information from the major rail companies, including CP this week, saying that they are just expecting a little dip in Q1 due to the Alberta curtailment. And so it seems that the volumes are still moving here. Yeah. Um, you can see that from the inventory. Yeah. If, if we didn't have some crude by rail moving, we wouldn't have saw these inventories draw down like they did. Right. Um, so it looks like things are uh, gonna rail's gonna keep rolling, pulling down those inventory levels, and it's it's good to see the government sticking to their words because when they announced this, they said their intention was to monitor the situation, mm-hmm. make changes. The goal was to make the curtailment as small as possible, and they're already moving in that direction. So we're only five million barrels away. It would seem to me, looking at the storage chart, from being back to normal. Right, we're at thirty-ish, thirty million barrels down to twenty-five. Is that 
yes, if we want to get to the five-year average, it would be another five million. So yeah, we, we're halfway to our goal in a month. So, so it's happening quickly. It's happening quickly. Uh, obviously, with this change, it may slow down the pace a little yeah. bit. I also think some yeah. of the rail movements may slow down more in February because obviously yeah. in January people didn't have yeah. the foresight of all these changes. Yeah. So I think the rate of change is going to slow, yeah. but yeah. it's still moving in the right direction. And I want to be cautious because I mean, there's a lot of I mean, structural issues. I mean, it's very volatile. And this industry is in the midst of all sorts of structural disruptive changes that we're, we're, we're going through. And I still think it's going to take most of this year to work towards stabilizing these issues. But, you know, it's, it's, it's all looking like it's happening faster than expected, which is heartening. Yeah, that's there's that's good news. All right, let's move on to the other big news uh, item this week, which is this longstanding legal case mm-hmm. on who cleans up abandoned oil and gas wells in bankruptcy. Now, it's called the Redwater case. This is the name of the company that went bankrupt. And there was a number of lower court decisions in favor of the bank. Uh, but this Supreme Court decision overturned those prior rulings and is now in favor of of the Alberta government. Um, So this case was the Alberta government versus ATB Financial Corp, the bank who had lent this company money. Yeah, I think it's important to take a look at this from sort of a high-level perspective of what actually went on. So we have this company, Redwater, which went bankrupt. The receiver goes in, uh, the bankruptcy receiver goes in and basically starts cherry-picking the assets and says that, uh, okay, here are the ones that uh, need to be abandoned, that have liability because it typically costs, I don't know, it depends on the wells. I don't know what these ones are. It's around $300,000. 300. I mean, some are, some are lower than that, yeah. but it's, it's highly unpredictable. <clears throat> but here's a group of wells that we'll just put over here in this bucket that need to be abandoned here. Let's cherry pick the good ones and the cash flow of the good ones will be used to pay off the bank. And exactly. so effectively, the bank... Uh, is elevated as a creditor in this situation. That's right. You know, they're the first, they, they, when they give the loan, they give the loan with the understanding that they're the first right. ones in line to the right. assets. Right. And so they were arguing, you know, this company, Redwater Energy, owned 17 producing oil and gas wells, and they owed ATB Financial $5 million. And so they're the first in line. They sell the good assets to get that money back. Yeah. Now the Alberta government said, oh, wait a second you know, the environmental liabilities rate in front of yeah. the bank. Really. You, you can't do financial gymnastics, number one, to uh, shake up the order of subordination. In other words, who gets paid out first or who has who's left holding the bag with a liability. And number two, you know, the, the, the court said, I think, uh, appropriately, that bankruptcy is not a license to ignore environmental regulations and obligations. I think it's really important, again, to come back to... Th- issues that we've talked about on our podcast before, and that is that the people of Alberta own the resource, and they get into a business partnership by leasing the resource rights, the mineral rights, to producers. Producers then get the capital, either from their own equity, their own cash flow, or from the banks, then to develop, and that the sale of those developed resources, once they're produced, yields income, which is then split equitably between producer and people of Alberta in the form of royalties and taxes. Okay, so in this construct, the banks are subordinate, ultimately, in my opinion, to the people of Alberta uh, who own the resource. And basically, what those gymnastics, as I call them, were trying to do was sort of shuffle the order of subordination. And I I think that that, that, that personally, I think that was wrong. 
or it is not correct to alter that uh, hierarchy of liability. Okay, well, I'm going to put the my banker hat on. Okay, you know, which is tough to do. But you know, lenders would say, well, now loans to the oil and gas industry are more risky because if uh, you know if I can't get the first chance of getting the money back, then there's a less chance that I can get my money back. Therefore, I'm now going to charge a higher interest rate to you because I deem this as more risky. Or maybe I won't give you the money at all. So maybe the oil and gas producers are going to have a hard time getting funding with this change. Well, potentially the oil and gas producers with sketchy assets on the periphery and the margin, and also oil and gas producers that potentially are already too much in debt. So their environmental obligation ratios, which uh, uh, are out there, are too high, uh, the, the cash flow uh, ratios to their environmental liability. Uh, but you know, for companies that have good assets, manageable debt, and uh, are, are, are in good shape. I, I don't really see it affecting them that much. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, when you make a statement like that, you're assuming all assets are equal. Not yeah. all assets yeah. are equal in terms of their environmental liability. There are some assets that have very little because they don't have a bunch well, of abandoned wells on them that need to be reclaimed, sure. they're, and they're all new. Um, so it, it really depends well, on the, uh, the uh, asset. Yeah, it depends on the asset. And as an Albertan, I'll make the argument that, uh, well, why are we funding marginal properties that are prone to premature abandonment or, or, or companies with lousy assets that are going to go bankrupt anyway. Mm -hmm. And legal liability. Yeah. So I, I think that there are many dimensions to this. Uh, you and I could argue either side, but I personally, I think the decision was a correct one. I think that it would open up a whole can of worms if it was allowed to go through because then all sorts of financial gymnastics would be uh, thought of in terms of how to basically leave the public holding the bag for environmental liability. Well, and interestingly, the industry actually quite supportive of this decision. And you say, mm. well, why is that? Because now their cost of capital might go up. Well, uh, CAP supports this. And the reason for that is actually these wells that are abandoned in this case would go to this orphan well program. And industry actually has to pay levies to pay it off. So collectively, it's not the Alberta government or the taxpayer that's paying to reclaim each of these wells, which may cost about $300,000 each. There's actually uh, industry fund that's supported by all the companies. And so the more wells that are thrown into that, the more liability the industry right. as a whole has to pay. And so they were supportive of this because they didn't want just a bunch of companies going bankrupt and then having all this liability that the yeah. rest of the industry has to pay for. Yeah. And even the smaller producers said they were surprised by the ruling, but they didn't see this as an issue and felt that most banks had already started to kind of think about this. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't going to change yeah. things too yeah. much. Yeah. Anyway, I, I think that it was a good ruling. I think that uh, there, there's a bit of uh, commotion around it this week, but over the course of the next while, it's uh, it's not likely to be a big issue. Okay, on to the last topic. The city of Victoria is recommending a class action lawsuit to help the city pay for the cost of climate change. And as you said earlier, it's not new. We had San Francisco and Oakland sued five oil companies on the same sort of challenge. This actually got thrown out yeah. by the courts. Yeah. Uh, new York had a legal challenge, also got thrown out. They've actually come back with a new uh, lawsuit that's arguing it a little bit differently. They're actually saying uh, now it's more like fraud because, you know, you had the information that climate change would be an issue and you didn't disclose that. So it's a little bit different take on the mm -hmm, argument. Mm -hmm. But the trend is there, right? Well, let's uh, let's all point figures at the producer, the front end of the supply chain for oil and gas. Uh, they are the root of all our problems as they relate to climate change. And so in a most recent article 
editorial that I wrote, which is on our website, www.archeneryinstitute.com. Yeah, we'll put a link we'll to put, we'll uh, that. We'll put the link and uh, also on the Financial Post. You can, uh, well, I basically scratch my head and say, well, wait a minute, like oil and gas doesn't emit anything. It's, it's, it's when you burn it and consume it in a car, in a stove, and in a furnace, that's where you get your emissions. So you can't just point your finger over the horizon to the producer and say all of our issues are related to one very front-end link in the chain of global emissions. Right. Well, 80% of all the emissions associated with a barrel of oil mm-hmm. come from the combustion side, right? right? So right. when we drive our car, when we fly in an airplane, when we move in a ship, yeah. that's where 80% of the problem is. So if all you do is try to uh, reduce the emissions on the upstream side, you're not dealing with the vast no, majority no, of the problem. No. And as I say in the article, I mean, there's society has a lot of issues to deal with amongst them, obesity, and, uh, you know, I make the comparison. I mean, somebody who's trying to lose weight in Toronto doesn't blame a farmer in Saskatchewan for their wasteland. You know, they've been programmed to go to the gym and, and work it off or eat better, eat healthier, lower carbs. Well, I, I think the same thing applies here in the, in the uh, issue when it comes to climate change. We know we have a problem, right? But mm-hmm. the consumer is equally responsible in terms of, you know, decarbonization, lower carbs, uh, thinking about more responsible ways of consuming the energy and consuming less. Yeah, and you know, for me, it's really frustrating. We talked in an earlier podcast about that sobering climate report. Yeah, uh, where basically there was sounding the alarm on the need for reducing greenhouse gas emissions quickly, and you know, very severe consequences if we couldn't keep the world within a 1.5 degree warming scenario. Yeah. And so, like this, there's urgency to get stuff done. And what well, makes me mad is these lawsuits. You know, what is the money and energy and effort that's going into them? And at the end of the day, it doesn't change how much oil we consume. And I'll say that for these pipeline issues as well. You know, if we stop building pipelines out of Canada, if we don't build the TMX, does that change anything in terms of how much oil the world consumes? I would say no. And no. therefore, we haven't done anything to solve the challenging and urgent issue of climate change. No, we haven't. We haven't. And it's, it's, it's very frustrating because when you start pointing fingers and, and firing off lawsuits, all you're doing is creating polarization. Polarization means less avenue for collaboration and issues like climate change and other societal ills are a communal issue that we have to all work together to remedy. It's not just uh, one constituency or one link in a supply chain, whether it has to do with food, whether it has to do with uh, oil and gas and, and other issues. Okay, well, that's a big topic to finish off on, yeah. but we've covered a lot today. <laughs> Maybe we ran out of time to keep ranting on that one. So thank you for joining our podcast. We will be back here next week. And if you like our podcast, please rate us and tell someone else about us. Yeah, talk to you next week. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.